Hey, really good friends. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take care of yourself. Hello. And welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. And hello, Rachel Craig. Hi. Hi. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to sing to you. No, that's okay. I was, I don't know where that, that came way. from. That came well, out of me. You. I got the music in me. Oh, yeah. I'm, you know what? I'm really honored, but um, it's better for everyone if I don't participate. I don't have the music in me. Why not? Why would you say that is? <laughs> I don't know. I think, um, I really don't know. I can't, you know, you can't have it all. I, so I think maybe that's it. I no guess one's you have perfect. the looks, you have the brains, right. you have the humor. Right. right. Nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just like couldn't also be a singer. I suppose that's the problem. Are you jealous of people who can sing? Are you, uh, really? Or do you want a joke answer? Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like, um, it makes me very upset. My sister can sing really, really well, um, mm-hmm. and I hate her just a little bit for it. <laughs> Would you Ursula her? Um, Not for a man, but... No, but for... Well, Ursula's thing is she wants the voice. Oh, 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 oh. Um, That's then, how yeah, it relates sure. to singing. Well, right, but I forgot. There's a, So she gives up her voice. I'm not really as familiar that's, with The Little that's Mermaid. That's Ariel. So, but she gives up her voice for a man. Yeah, but I'm asking, would you, <laughs> Rachel Craig, Ursula, your sister's voice? Um, would you hmm. steal your sister's voice because she can sing? In this situation, <laughs> you are an octopus witch. Okay, no, I like I know who she is mainly from because the Jonas Brothers did a cover of Poor oh Unfortunate God. Souls. Okay. There's a lot of like, like Joe Bros references here. You and the Joe Bros. Okay, so to sorry to answer your question. Yes. Okay. I was, I would like really wanted to say no, but in, in those two seconds, I like did a little bit of self-reflecting and decided You're that vindictive. the answer was probably yes. Yeah. I don't think it's vindictive. I just think like she doesn't get to have everything either. Who? Megan. My, sorry, oh. my sister. Yeah. Like right. she doesn't need it. She doesn't need it. No. And I'm not, I, I never said Ursula, Ur- Ursuling, Ursula-ing her voice was a bad thing necessarily. Well, what is the ben- like she's the villain of that movie, so like what would Yeah, but I think Ursula's misunderstood, bad? right? Is she? Yeah, I think well, so. I- Why? Uh, I want to get into this one episode. I'm going to cover mm-hmm. Disney villains, like the queer the queerness of Disney villains, but she is different and she is an outcast and I think like Sure. Yes, she does like kind of a bad thing, but I, I don't know. I just feel I- Listen, I think I think Disney villains, and I am very excited for your episode, but I also think um, someone somewhere needs to unpack the trauma histories of Disney villains because there are no evil people in the world. There are no, there are no like, true villains. So, like, you say something that, happened. but I don't – I disagree. Do you? Mm-hmm. You think that there are, like, true real-life villains? Yeah, I do. Okay. I don't necessarily want to take the stance in public right now that there aren't. I don't know that I'm ready to do that, actually. Maybe this was a mistake, but that like... That was a bold claim. But like, I don't know. Okay. I don't know that there's real life... I don't know that there's a real life villain. Although I did just say I would Ursula my sister's voice, so like, in, in it's that you. way, it would make me... <laughs> You're the real life villain. It would make me the one real life cartoon villain to exist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 
Let's move away from villains. Let's talk about okay. heroes. Okay. If you could be a superhero, who would you be? Oh, no, because I don't really okay. care about Marvel. If you could yeah. have a superpower, what would it be? Oh, That's more um, fun to me. Okay. Um, reading minds. Ooh, because I'm okay. because I'm just a deeply insecure person and it would really help me a lot. Like I think I would have like a very fulfilling life if I just knew everyone didn't hate me. Mm-hmm. But then what happens when someone like in their head's like, God, I hate her. Well, then at least I know. Okay. You can emotionally handle that. Um, no, but this is hypothetical. So let's pretend that I can. Um, okay. And it's not a superpower to like help anyone at all. It's more no. just like a supernatural power. Like I wouldn't do anything for it. Right. I wouldn't That's do so anything funny. for anyone else. I my Okay. So mine would probably be like invisibility. Right. And mm-hmm. I think both of those superpowers are very self-centered. Like it's, it's a defense mechanism for both of us. And <laughs> it does, yeah. it actively does not help another person. No, because um, also, if you think about like what the probably like main superpowers are, I don't really know how they would really be helpful to others. Like, w- what does invisibility or 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 like um, it, like reading me. minds? Right, you. What I'm saying is, why are those the classic like superhero tropes? Like, what do they do for the oh. greater good of society? Nothing. Like, well, they could only can, like, be selfish. Right. You could like sneak around and then like evade bad guys to then like attack from behind with with invisibility oh so like some vigilante stuff maybe yeah but i feel like i would use mine to like disappear and get away like i wouldn't like go up behind him and then like attack i would like disappear Mm -hmm. and like like skirt (laughs) okay okay that makes sense i also i think thinking about like superheroes Mm -hmm. because i've been thinking a lot about robert pattinson because he's batman now Mm -hmm. um also just just thinking about him um, he's, that's like a a super it's just being rich i'd like that one i'd like that superpower yeah i don't really care for batman he's just like a rich guy that has a loads of like childhood trauma that he just needs to work through yeah no i don't care for him if i could choose a superpower for you okay i would um oh i would i would make you mystique right i would make you like a shape-shifting okay. but she turns bad she's not good she's no good well I didn't get that far, so I'll make you the good. It's like mystique. literally after the first movie, like the yeah, end of the I first saw... movie. No, I think I saw like the first half of the first movie. Okay, so thank you. I appreciate that because You're um, welcome. she's fun. Yeah, I don't. I'm not like a huge Jennifer Lawrence fan. No, that's okay. But I think blue looks good on you. Thank you. I don't really wear blue very often, so maybe you should more. Maybe I should more. That's what the... would you pick for okay. me? I think I'd make you like an ant man. I think I'd make you like an ant man. Yeah, like small. Why? Like you have the ability to like shrink. I think. I don't know. Okay, so you it hate just me. Feels right. No, like because then you could. I don't know. I feel like you and Ranger could like go hang out together because you'll be like a little. Well, bit Ranger smaller. would still be big. But you could, you could, like, could like control your size. Yeah. Or like like a night at the museum thing, you know, like all those <laughs> mini guys, you know, yeah, like, I don't know, it just seems like fun. You would have no responsibilities. You'd just be small. That's okay. No, you sold me. That's what I do want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I want. <laughs> so you know me so well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, if you could, if you could marry a superhero, who would it be? From like what? Just like any superhero that existed? Yeah, why not? 
I don't think I know enough of them. Who do you who do you think is hot? Is what this question really is saying? Mm, so many of them. <laughs> oh no, a Robert Pattinson as Batman. There you go. There's an answer. Really? Okay. You okay. Sorry, I don't. Come <laughs> with an answer. I didn't mean to yuck your gum. You did. It's very yummy, and I feel Mm-mm. yucked. I'm. I would be happy for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. If if that can't make you happy, I like don't know what. No, your happiness makes could. me happy. I can tell. It's your number one priority. <laughs> number one priority in life. <laughs> okay. Should Should we get into it? Should we dive headfirst yeah, like into we, the waters of our we story? Should. All right. Great. I'm going first this week. This week, I'm going to be talking to you about the friends of Dorothy, and. Like, the way I start is kind of a roundabout way to get into my... Like, just hold... Just, like, hang in there. Just trust me. Okay. In season four, episode seven of The Crown, Queen Elizabeth and her sister, Princess Margaret, discuss a man by the name of Dazzle. And so Princess Margaret likes Dazzle romantically, but sadly, Dazzle doesn't feel the same about Margaret. Despite her hopes of being together and finding joy within one another, Dazzle has decided to join the Catholic priesthood. That's the second reason he was never the right man for you, Queen Elizabeth tells her sister. The first being, Margaret asks in return. Well, he's, you know, a friend of Dorothy, Elizabeth replies. And this response, Dazzle was a friend of Dorothy, had fans of the show racking their brains trying to remember who the hell Dorothy was. Was she a supporting character they had just forgotten? Why couldn't they remember who played Dorothy? But the truth is that Dorothy isn't a character on the crown. And if you don't watch The Crown like I don't, then maybe you'll recognize the phrase from the 1995 classic, Clueless. In the scene where Murray is teaching Dion to drive her car, Cher is in the backseat detailing how she almost had sex with her new beau, Christian. Murray laughs and says, your man Christian is a cake boy. The girls respond, a what? He then goes on, he's a disco dancing, Oscar Wilde reading, Streisand ticket holding friend to Dorothy. Know what I'm saying? So then, what does it mean exactly that both Dazzle and Christian are friends of Dorothy? And I'm sure you can guess, but put simply, they're both gay. The phrase friend of Dorothy is just like the hanky code or asking a woman if she's heard the rumors about Marie Antoinette. It was another signifier popular in the mid-20th century to know if someone, especially a man, was queer. And this question avoided loads of hostility and potential danger for those wondering. So now that you know that the slang friend of Dorothy means a gay man, or more broadly a queer person, I want to talk about its potential origins and some modern usages, as there are a few places that this phrase may have come from before it's popularized. All right. And like with other queer codes, the exact origins are unknown and often debated, but here are a few good guesses. Let's start with the origin that most people's minds probably go to when they hear the name Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz and Judy Garland. This is probably the most agreed-upon origin for the phrase as well, so I think it's a great place to start. First, I want to talk about the books. Many believe that the phrase Friend of Dorothy comes from the 1909 book Road to Oz, which is L. Frank Baum's sequel to his 1900 book The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. In this book, readers are introduced to the character Polychrome, who is a cloud fairy, literally the daughter of a rainbow, who, upon meeting Dorothy's travel buddy, says... You have some queer friends, Dorothy. And Dorothy replies, the queerness doesn't matter so long as they're friends. 
And of course, in this context and time period, Polychrome is noting that Dorothy's companions are like interesting or strange, which was the colloquial definition. But this phrase could then later on be reclaimed by the LGBTQ plus community who purposefully change the meaning of queer in the sentence to identify with it better. Like, of course, L. Frank Baum isn't saying like, oh, Dorothy, like all of your friends are gay men. But because <laughs> this word that it's like a word that has a double meaning, it's easy to use within the queer community and kind of take it and re like purpose it for their own use. Right. In the same book, Road to Oz, there's even a character that is believed to be one of the first trans characters in literature. Princess Ozma, who is the daughter of the former King of Oz, is given to the witch Mombai of the North by the Wizard of Oz. And Mombai transforms Ozma into a boy and calls him Tip in order to prevent the rightful ruler of Oz from ascending to the throne. Ozma spends her entire childhood as a boy named Tip with no recollection of ever being a baby girl. But then she would later be changed back into Princess Ozma by Glinda, the Good Witch, and go on to rule over the Land of Oz. There are also a few other moments in these books which are often debated as to whether they were subversive or unintentionally queer, such as when Dorothy asks the Scarecrow which way to go, and he replies, some people go both ways. Flash forward 30 years, MGM releases the Technicolor Wonder, The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland, and the movie instantly resonates with queer viewers. For one, in the film, Dorothy is this young girl struggling to find out where she belongs. She is accepting of everyone considered different or an outcast besides the Wicked Witch of the West, and this ragtag group of Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion mirrors queer people who create chosen families. The movie also lacks a heteronormative male-female romantic relationship, as was standard of movies in this time, and instead they focus on themes of kinship and family and friendship. These characters additionally send the message that they don't need to change who they are to become what they want to be. They've had it inside themselves all along. And the Wikipedia page poignantly notes that many see Garland's betrayal as a queer journey and escape from the puritanical, morally rigid, black and white small town life to a technicolor city existence with fabulous friends. Not only this, but Judy Garland's performance of Somewhere Over the Rainbow feels almost like she's singing to queer people directly. She sings about a place where she isn't constrained, where she's allowed to be free and happy. Many queer people resonate deeply with this song, which is why many claim that this song directly influenced the ideation and creation of the queer pride flag. The song, one of the most memorable of Judy Garland's career, garnered queer fans from every corner of the world. It's noted in a Time Magazine article in 1967 that during Judy's last performance at New York's Palace Theater, a disproportionate part of her nightly clack seems to be homosexual. The boys in the tight trousers roll their eyes, tear at their hair, and practically levitate from their seats, particularly when Judy sings Over the Rainbow. Mm. It's widely a gay audience. It's like a known thing that she kind of just has this like massive gay fan base. Okay. But more than Dorothy Gale from The Wizard of Oz and the song Over the Rainbow, queer fans heavily related to Judy Garland herself. Nowadays, we have artists that have massive queer followings like Lady Gaga, Marina, Lana Del Rey, and on and on and on. But back then, there was Judy. Judy Garland is one of the first celebrities to have their personal lives aired publicly. All of her drinking and drug problems, various lovers, the divorces, everyone had their eyes on her. And not only do queer people thrive on drama, but they also related to her treatment as being an outcast. 
she is constantly dragged through the mud this like tragic diva but no matter what she persists and always stands back up queer communities idolize the way that she pressed forward despite all of her struggles Judy Garland had extreme stage fright, but came alive when she was on the stage, and queer fans admired her resilience and wanted it for themselves. Her father had been rumored to be gay, and Judy also had been married or in romantic relationships with numerous gay men, most of them coming out after they'd been divorced or separated. Time after time, Judy attracted queer men to her like she's a friggin' magnet. And it's said that the front rows of Judy's concerts were entirely made up of gay men and that a Garland event was a quote-unquote pre-Stonewall means of encountering other gay men. And speaking of Stonewall, Judy dies on July 22nd, 1969, and it really shakes the queer community. Judy's funeral is held about a week later on July 27th, 1969, the morning of the Stonewall riots. Sylvia Rivera, who's a trans activist and leader of the Stonewall riots, explains Judy's death in connection to the riot, saying, I guess Judy Garland's death just really helped us hit the fan. And so there's no direct correlation between, you know, throwing the first brick at Stonewall and Judy Garland's death, but it just kind of seems like the straw, like the piece of straw before the straw that broke the camel's back. Like it was kind of just that one other little thing right before the scales tipped. The next potential origin for the phrase friend of Dorothy moves away from one Dorothy Gale, but to another woman, Dorothy Parker. Born in the late 19th century and prominent throughout the 20th century, Dorothy Parker was a celebrated, eccentric, and witty New York-based poet, critic, humorist, and satirist, well known for being one of the screenwriters for the original A Star is Born movie. Dorothy was also widely known as, quote, defender of human and civil rights, end quote. And in the 1920s and 1930s, Dorothy's social circle included droves of gay men, not to mention the fact that she was married to a bisexual man herself who called himself queer as a billy goat. Dorothy Parker had plenty of gay fans like Judy Garland, as they loved her wit and sarcasm sprinkled throughout her writings. It's rumored that during the decades of her heyday, especially which was like during the Prohibition era, Dorothy would throw famous parties at West Hollywood hotels and in speakeasies where she would invite gay men who in turn would invite other gay men who would then all have to use the phrase friend of Dorothy to gain entry. Dorothy Parker was then blacklisted as a communist during the McCarthy era for her civil rights push and upon her death left her entire estate to Martin Luther King Jr. The next potential origin comes kind of in connection with Dorothy Parker, but early in the 20th century, official bans on queer men serving in the military first surface. The U.S. introduces a ban in a revision of the Articles of War of 1916, and the U.K. prohibits homosexuality in the Army and Air Force Acts in 1955. During the 1940s and World War II, many British and U.S. soldiers formed romantic relationships with one another, but for fear of being discovered as queer and being persecuted for it, a lot of these queer men began to use the code found in Dorothy Parker's writings, noting each other as friends of Dorothy. And in the 1970s and 80s, an openly gay sailor by the name of Mel Dahl applies for a promotion in the Navy. He's open, and he lets them know that he's gay, and they kind of freak out. He lets them know that there are plenty of other gay men serving in the Navy that are just a bit more quiet about the whole thing, and the Navy freaks out even more. So what they do is open an investigation, a 
very expensive investigation to spy on gay clubs and out all of their seamen seamen in the chicago area and the agents find that gay men refer to themselves as friends of dorothy unaware that this phrase has a historical and covert meaning to it the naval investigative service believes that there's actually a woman by the name of dorothy at the center of a massive ring of homosexuality military personnel top minds everybody top minds (laughs) (laughs) and so they shift their focus and launch an enormous hunt for this elusive dorothy hoping to find her and convince her to reveal the names of all of the gay service members oh it's too much it kind of reminds me a little bit when i was doing research for kitty genevieve's last week one of the notes was that police officers at the time would like impersonate gay men to try and sort of like catch them i guess Uh in the act but like they would go to these lengths of like basically having sex with a man to be like haha i got got you like they would spend days and weeks and hours like in these gay clubs just being like i and it's just it's like bye honey time to go like have sex with a guy in the bath like watch two gay men having sex in the bathroom see ya like what what, what are you doing Obviously, they were quite unsuccessful at finding the the woman named Dorothy, but in the end, they kicked out a bunch of queer servicemen and wasted tons of money in the process. Also, in the late 1980s, several cruise lines began to experience queer passengers asking the staff to publicize queer gatherings in the daily cruise activity list. Cruises, being incredibly hesitant to announce such gatherings to like the entire board and potentially non-accepting passengers, began to list these gatherings as a meeting of the friends of Dorothy. Cruise lines also use the phrase meetings of friends of Bill W to tell members of Alcoholics Anonymous that they were meeting on board. So it just kind of seemed like the easiest way to go about it. They wanted some discretion. There was this already used phrase and they were like, okay, like we might as well just call it this to, you know, let queer people know what's going on and not piss off the other passengers. Right? It's like in elementary school, they used to say Dr. Luke down to the front office instead of calling a lockdown. So, smart thinking. Wow. Yeah. So, I kind of, that's, that makes sense. Again, loving the organization that keeps coming up, the thoughtfulness, the creativity here, loving it. The thoughtfulness, but also the crew signs were like, we don't really want queer people to be like organizing events on our boat so we're gonna like kind of sweep it under the carpet true i also did not realize the intricate event systems of cruise lines like i i guess i don't understand how there's like aa meetings and also like specifically queer events and also like the impractical jokers like i don't get you know like i don't three things yeah like it's just and like a water slide somewhere like it's just conf- cruises are confusing to me but yeah i guess you're right that is i mean <laughs> if you're like a recovering alcoholic and you're like stuck on a boat for like a week or whatever in the middle of the ocean like you probably and everybody else is like drinking you probably want like an outlet and support system yeah, like right? makes a ton of sense i get like i just i guess yeah, cruises are really big like i think yeah. a cruise i think a cruise ship the idea of a cruise ship is what's confusing me. Um, um, we can dig into that later. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get okay. back into it. Okay, perfect. And the phrase meetings of friends of Dorothy still lives on cruise ships to this day. 
But because they call the events by this phrase, they often get really low turnouts because a lot of people don't know what Friends of Dorothy mean. A lot of older generations might, but like a lot of people in our generation have never heard this before. They have no idea what it means. So if they were to hear that, they'd be like, okay, everybody that's a friend of Dorothy, like is going to this meeting, whatever, but you know, like going with her lives. And what kind of an event is it? Like, I don't understand fully, I guess. I, I don't know exactly, but I guess just something queer just like a hangout yeah i guess a little meet and greet of other queer members i don't know maybe we should go on a cruise and 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 find out and find out okay i'm a little scared of that but we'll see if 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 we get enough followers on the podcast subscribers to the podcast we'll go on a cruise i'll face my fear all of us yes everyone everyone together we'll start our own cruise oh my god okay not what i was (laughs) expecting to come out of this story but i'm so glad it is okay The last thing I'll say about cruises and cruise ships is that many cruise lines have rightfully shifted to being more open and transparent about LGBTQ plus themed events. There are many cruise lines out there that are like geared towards queer events and and queer passengers and stuff. So there, a lot of them are no longer just like hiding it and saying meetings of friends of Dorothy and they're actually calling it what it is. So don't think that cruise lines are like still, you know, like hiding queer passengers the very last uh, kind of usage of of this phrase or a phrase like it, um, in the same vein as Friends of Dorothy, the phrase Friends of Mrs. King, which uh, meaning queen, meaning like a gay man, like the slang of a queen, you know, like a gay man. Oh, so they'll say Friends okay. of Mrs. King. And this was meaning used queen. in the fir- Meaning queen, meaning okay. gay man, was used in the first half of the 20th century in England. Okay. So we kind of had friends of Dorothy, they had a friend of Mrs. King, and those are the potential origins and some, you know, usages of the queer slang phrase, friend of Dorothy. All right. That was really interesting. I definitely had never heard that before. I don't know, like, I'm trying to think of what spaces I would have have. heard that, (laughs) would have heard that used in, but I've definitely never seen Clueless or The Crown. Not that I think I would have been a viewer who was uh, probably confused by that, but it's just so interesting i think not to like be a downer it's definitely regularly upsetting how like covert things need to be but at the same time i think it was really interesting to learn the origins especially of where that came from and like people finding a little bit of themselves in things like the wizard of oz and stuff it also just feels like very present to me i don't know why like obviously that was very early in the 20th century is that right yeah 1939 is when the movie came out but it, it feels like you just told me a story of something that's going on now. I mean, every time I talk about kind of like a covert language, I want to bring it back. Let's bring it back. Let's be friends with yeah. Dorothy. Honestly, that was like a really fun. I enjoy that very much. I enjoy all of your stories, but I especially Thank you enjoyed so that much. one very much. Thank you. Before I forget, the sources I used for this week are a pride.com article entitled, So What Does It Mean to Be a Friend of Dorothy by Terra Necessary? A men's health article called Here's What They Mean on the Crown When They Say Friend of Dorothy by Philip Ellis and the Wikipedia page for the entry Friend of Dorothy. And that's my story. I loved it. Thanks so much. All right. So today I'm going to be talking about the Hayes Code and now... I think Jared may know more about this than I do because he's like a film bro. 
Uh, I don't know if well, that's a classification. Well, hold on there. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I went to film school. Yes. Am I a film okay. bro? Hell no. That's okay. You, that's, will, that's you will never catch me identifying as a film bro. I would rather die. Okay. Okay. So Jared went to film school. Um, so Jared, do you want to share with us before we get started anything you remember about the Hayes Code? The Hayes Code was so long. It was like yeah. three decades. Yes. And it was really restrictive. Like it was like, mm-hmm. the, but like, like I get back then they were trying to be like moral and stuff but like they were restrictive in the fact that like like i don't want to spoil i don't want to spoil too much of your story but they were restrictive down to the smallest things that didn't need to be restrictive but it's just like it's a mess of the whole era of like mccarthyism and like you know Mm -hmm. just like calling out like trying trying to be so moral and like there was a lot to do with religion in a lot of the deciding factors and it just was like a gross time i think in our nation's history and we have so many of those but i think this definitely like in the film industry too was just not needed i'm glad it's over and i I, i'll let you say a lot of the specifics but i just like down with the haze code yeah it's certainly pretty icky you touch on a lot of stuff and if anything gets kind of like shaken out of your brain as we go through interrupt me but i learned about the haze code the first year of film school my freshman year so that's what five six years ago Mm -hmm. yeah so i had never heard about it and So for those of you, I know we started talking about film school. The Hayes Code is like also known as the Motion Picture Production Code. And it's like a series of, we're going to go through them in more detail, but it's kind of just like a series of very restrictive guidelines on movie production. So go through it a little bit. So my sources include an NPR article by Bob Mondello titled Remembering Hollywood's Hayes Code 40 Years On. A History of LGBTQ Plus Representation in Film by Abby Montiel. An LGBTQ History Lesson Plan entitled The Legacy of the Hayes Code. Queer Representation in Film and Television by Haley Tran for Medium. And finally, From Sissies to Secrecy, The Evolution of the Hayes Code Queer by Michaela Mislack. So... In trying to figure out how to kind of tell this story, because as Jared said, it's kind of like a decades long thing and encompasses a lot of different kind of like history of the time. And we don't have, we don't spend that much time together. We only have an hour. So I'm going to start with kind of a brief history of queer characters, stories, and like some tropes in film. I feel like this is not a brief topic. I'm going to like try to just touch on some brief points and then we're going to kind of shift into the Hayes Code. Sweet. So, like, it's going to be, like I said, it's going to be very brief. But in 1894, the Dixon Experimental Sound Film is recognized as the first gay film because it included two men dancing together in a way that was counter to the traditional behavior of two men. So that's, like, what was regarded as, like, the first depiction in film of two gay men. Okay. By 1919, so about 25 years later, Germany was beginning to see a decline in film censorship post-World War I. Enter, and I don't know how to pronounce this title because oh it's in German, Anders Alls, it's just die. It's just, the, the German language is so aggressive. Anderen. It translates to different from the others. Okay. Um, 
So it's a film with a gay protagonist who dies by suicide after being blackmailed for his sexuality. And the film was actually meant as a call for, quote, gay tolerance, which was kind of like quoted from the activist Magnus Hirschfeld. So it it wasn't like a a negative representation, but it was like showing the like tragic effects of like sexuality stigma. And then 1922 in the US was the premiere of Salome. Also don't know how to pronounce that one, but it's an Oscar Wilde play. We're bringing it all back. Love it. Yeah, I think I just don't know how to speak old English or whatever, or German. And that's okay. No one is expecting you to. This was an adaptation of an Oscar Wilde play, which sparked controversy because its creators, actors, and designers were reportedly queer and or in same-sex relationships, as well as the script content itself, which suggested that two of the main characters were gay. That was in 1922. There were kind of like other sporadic movies throughout this time that kind of featured some characters that were recognized as queer. Um, But now we're moving to 1934 when the Hayes Code, also known as the Motion Picture Production Code, became strictly enforced. So this lasts from 1934 until it's lifted in 1968. And at that time, queer messages and characters, they didn't like go away. Like we were seeing them before this, but they simply just kind of became coded in into films of the time. Now we're going to talk about more specifically what the Hayes Code was. So we're like hot off the heels of the Roaring Twenties. There's like speakeasies and flappers and like Great Gatsby style parties. But then we're into the Great Depression and like we're in between world wars and there's, as Jared was saying, there's this moral panic and like everybody's looking for someone to blame for, you know, there was all of this great prosperity and everything has gone wrong. And so everybody's kind of looking around to see what caused that. So films were rising in popularity and filmmakers were kind of like far enough outside of the realm of politics which meant that church-sponsored pro-censorship activists kind of set their sights on immorality in film because it was influential to the public, but it didn't mean they had to like go against the government. So it kind of seems like an easy target. Mm -hmm. So to contextualize a little bit, this is around the same time that one of our earlier subjects, James Baldwin, moved to Europe to escape homophobia in America. And as Michaela Mislack has described, quote, homosexuals were thought of as an unspeakable minority whose agenda was believed to be powerful and Enough to corrupt even the most pure of heart, unquote. Which I also think is funny when we talk about like the homosexual agenda. But so like people at the time were like, we're like the, you know, like this is going to completely corrupt our society, and like mm-hmm. we cannot allow people to be like viewing anything kind of deviant. So right. with this being like the tone of the of the entire country, it's like not really a surprise that homosexuality was labeled as a sexual deviance within like laws and other things and banned in movies along with 35 other principles which that's what the Hayes Code was essentially it was a set of 36 principles that kind of like guided movie production so some of the other major principles included and I'm gonna read like the verbatim text and then we'll kind of go through a little bit of what it means but it's kind of funny the text that they used so No picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. So, I don't know who gets to decide, like, what's going to lower the moral standards. But also, it feels so subjective. Like, if I see a movie and I feel bad for, like, the guy that's doing the crime, 
like that's not the that's not always the movie's fault like what if i just take the villain side all the time right uh weird we were just talking about ursula so like i guess right. the little mermaid would be banned i guess yeah to f- in in this in this guy's context yeah another one correct standards of life subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment shall be presented so again like that's just so vague so are they saying that only real life is depicted like you can't do like sci-fi and you can't do out of this world and yeah it seems that like anything other than yeah then then a real life maybe dramatized dramatized i can say that Uh dramatized Dramatized situation like that's the only thing and then this one's funny too law natural or human shall not be ridiculed nor shall sympathy be created for its violation so just like you can't you can't like joke you there's no satire there's no again you can't really like depict a violation of laws you can't you can't joke about laws Right, and natural or human. So those were kind of like the three I selected that I think were a little bit absurd. Three of the guidelines, but there were within the 36 guidelines, there were also prohibitions on nudity, suggestive dances, discussion of sexual perversity, superfluous use of liquor, ridicule of religion, interracial relationships, lustful kissing and scenes of passion what gets me is kissing because in all of between the 1930s and the 1960s the like movies were so romantically Mm -hmm. based and so the things that they do to get around kissing and or like i don't know it's just like it makes the interactions between characters so uncomfortable but then they'll like also have a married couple that are in separate beds like that's why in a lot of old films married or like tv shows married couples are not in the same they're like in weird twin beds that have like a nice damp between them is because they couldn't be shown in the same bed it's like even if they were married they could like they were so nitpicky about what truly could be shown and what couldn't so everything was just like was so bland it was just like so baseline like nothing even that could be taken out of context would be allowed yeah, exactly. And it's just like not reflective of real life at all. Like like you no. said, it makes it awkward because it, it doesn't like demonstrate real interactions because that's not Mm-mm. like I think this was trying to do the opposite of how we learn things, right? It was trying to right. teach adults how to act when they're already adults. They already kind of like have their worldview shaped. It's not like yeah. watching a movie. Like they were doing it in response to this idea that watching a movie completely changes fundamentally who you are. And that's just like right. not true. And so then they ended up playing these movies or creating these movies based on what they wanted people to be, but they're, they're, just, they're right. just not accurate. But what I find funny is that the filmmakers then went specifically out of their way to make everything look really subversive. Like all Mm -hmm. of the, you know, like imagery, it's always like we, like a big film school thing was like, you know, like the man holds a gun and the gun is phallic. You know, it's like everything, (laughs) everything was symbolism. Everything meant something else during this time because they truly could not be. Do like anything. Yeah. Yeah. So... The creator and postmaster general, which I also found, like, 
weird. I also don't know what that is, but it's like a government appointment. Of like the USPS? Role. Yeah. Uh well of the United States, I guess I guess I guess. I don't know, but he created these and he was like appointed by I think the president at the time was like Grover Cleveland, maybe. Okay. I don't know. The the United States Postmaster General or the PMG is the chief executive officer of the United States Postal Service or the USPS. Okay, good. That makes sense. Um, can you also look up who the president was in 1934? FDR. So it was William Harrison Hayes who was the Postmaster General and the creator of the Hayes Code. He said about these guidelines, quote, the code sets up high standards of performance for motion picture producers. It states the considerations which good taste and community value make necessary in this universal form of entertainment, unquote. So he's like, everybody just needs to have the same standards that I do, basically, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. if they want to, like, enjoy entertainment. And so what's interesting is that the Hayes Code wasn't technically, like, a law. So therefore, it was sort of voluntary. But if filmmakers wanted their work to be produced and then played for American audiences, they sort of had to comply. So it wasn't government censorship, so to speak, like because the government wasn't enforcing this, but anything that didn't fit within these rigid guidelines, and again, there were 36 of them, we only touched on a few, they just like never made it out of production. And so this, like Jared was talking about even earlier, like it extended into so many things. And I'm maybe getting like very close to Tucker Carlson, like rambling about like the green M&M thing, but like this code even applied to cartoon characters. And at a certain time, Betty Boop, even had to like she changed from being a flapper and like she had to start wearing a longer skirt um which is just interesting that that's again what people thought was shaping the minds of americans yeah it's kind i don't want to liken it to the i mean it's not the same exact thing but it's like when parents are like i don't want my children playing violent video games because Mm -hmm. that's going to make them criminals it's like right it's not like, it just like, doesn't make sense, really. And, and the intention may be coming from a good... I don't think this was really coming from a good place, really. But no. I think the intention... Yeah, it just... I'm not even going to try to justify. It just, like, really doesn't make sense. It's not how brains work. It's also... There's nothing wrong with what was being shown. So all around, kind of right. dumb. So <laughs> I'm hoping from the very brief history we talked about in the beginning that representations of queer people have existed within film since its creation, but they haven't always been like positive representations instead. And like from the beginning of their representation and because of the Hayes Code, queer characters and storylines became heavily coded. And it's a practice we can kind of like still recognize today. I don't think we've fully outgrown it. So coding characters was a way to represent queerness without explicitly stating it. And while some filmmakers were able to use this to their advantage, more often than not, queer people kind of became coded as villains. Some were the type of cartoonish villain that we may be able to recognize and Jared's very excited to talk about, but others were played as like very, very like seriously heinous, just like rapists and murderers. And that's kind of what they were coded as. Abby Montiel says, quote, early examples of queer-coded villains include the titular antagonist of Dracula's Daughter and Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, but an especially interesting case is Joel Cairo in The Maltese Falcon. 
Although Joel's queerness is explicitly stated in the film's source material, it's only hinted at in the movie through his effeminate behavior and love of perfume, unquote. So, <laughs> like, because obviously that's how we all are right. able to define someone's sexuality. Right, um, perfume. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock also made intentional choices to hint at a same-sex relationship being the motivation for his two main characters in Rope to become, like, serial killers. So, yeah. a- again, we're, like, seeing sexuality be the driving force behind villainous behavior mm-hmm. and not, like... Not that it's okay in like cartoony ways either, but it's not an easy way to recognize that it's not real. It's very real acts of violence that is being motivated by sexuality and it's able to be believed at the time too. Though some writers were able to circumvent the code and still tell stories of queer characters without them being the main antagonist, Gore Vidal was able to do it in 1959 with Ben-Hur, which is kind of even more impressive considering it's a biblical story. So I kind of love that. Ben-Hur is the film that Ramon Navarro was in. That's what I thought. I was writing this one and I was like, I I feel like this is the one we talked about last week. And so he said he wanted the relationship between two of the main male characters to be implied and wanted to include in the story that the two men were in love and had a sexual relationship. So I never saw the movie. I don't know if if I was able to be part of it, but it was intentional that there was kind of like coding, but in a more positive way to show that, to like demonstrate that the two men had some kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. So once the Hays Code was lifted, slash sort of abandoned and just kind of like fizzled out in 1968 because if you've gathered these movies kind of sucked like like they weren't (laughs) aside from just like erasing and like creating really harmful stereotypes about queer people there was just like no real content in the movies because there just wasn't really anything allowed anymore so by 1968 which was still a long time but it did just kind of like fizzle out there began a slow rise in less coded but still queer film and television beginning most notably with the Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1975. This wave kind of continued and hit its peak in the 90s with queer filmmakers telling dynamic, inclusive, and truly representative stories. Although Haley Tran notes, quote, for decades after LGBT characters were allowed to appear in films, their sexuality and gender was shrouded in thinly veiled innuendos and visual cues. If a character was to be openly same gender attracted or transgender, they would be gruesomely killed or presented as morally corrupted. Even today, some 40 years after the end of the Hays Code, LGBT characters are rarely allowed to exist freely and enjoy a happy ending, unquote. There's a YouTube video by the um, YouTube channel is called T Noir. It's called Does the Media Have an Obsession with Queer Pain? And I watched that video and a lot of their other stuff. And part of me kind of says yes. And it's because of things like the Hayes Code and its lasting impacts in film and television. Um, when I was writing this, I really couldn't think of a single thing I have watched recently that didn't include a same-sex relationship as either a joke, as kind of like a dramatic and shocking twist, as a secret, or as something harmful to one of the characters or their families in some way. I don't know if you have the same experience, really, and I love talking about media literacy, so I love kind of thinking about those things, but like, I don't really think that a show has depicted that in a healthy or just like normal way. I don't think mainstream media does. I mean, B 
being queer, I seek out a lot of Mm -hmm. media that has queer content and characters and some of it ends, you know, positively, but the whole trope of bury your gaze, which is another topic we can get into. um, But it basically is just about killing off queer characters and never letting them have like you were saying a happy successful ending and that trope is incredibly active it's just it's in a lot of mainstream media right and so i encourage people to kind of think about those things too that again we bring it up constantly but like these things don't just they're not dead and buried you know they no. they still kind of exist and remnants of them are present for all of us mm-hmm. It's not totally all negative, though. There's certainly still a ways to go in terms of representation in film for a lot of reasons, not just queer representation. But um, Abby Montiel had said that Moonlight made history in 2017 as the first LGBTQ plus movie to win an Oscar for Best Picture. This film, which features an all-Black cast, was one big step toward making gay cinema that isn't whitewashed, features a range of identities, and doesn't make its queer characters one note or vehicles of suffering. So my proposal is that we stop making Fast and Furious movies and just kind of like let queer people have have their own stupid movies now. Like what? what? Representation doesn't have to be like this groundbreaking, amazing. Like we don't have to cram 12,000 people's experience into a 90 minute movie. But I think Hollywood can certainly work on having just some more queer stories that are more inclusive and representative. Absolutely. So yeah, that's like a very brief, I said brief far too many times, but I can't emphasize enough how much more detail there is about the Hayes Code and a lot more about its mm-hmm. impacts, but that's just kind of like a little taste of of the Hayes Code. Oh, never needed to exist, but I'm glad you were able to tell the story of it tonight. Yeah, it's something that I had never known about. I had seen that YouTube video that I mentioned earlier about a year ago, mm-hmm. maybe, and I remember being really fascinated by it because that was the first I was really able to think and notice um, that those kind of tropes and storylines for queer characters that I was seeing. Right. And so being able to learn more about the potential origins of things like that has been really interesting. The other, I think, really important part to emphasize about this was that This was kind of a cultural and religious censorship that was very Mm -hmm. effective, right? So this wasn't any government oversight or anyone in particular saying, you will be arrested or face this punishment if you don't abide by these rules. But it was a banding together of people to say, we don't want this to exist. And so what we will do is Mm -hmm. pressure and force you by honestly, like economic means and and other things right. to to not have your stories kind of exist. Something else that I just want to mention about the Hayes Code is that when the Hayes Code ended, that was kind of like the catalyst for the MPAA or whatever it is, rating yes. system. So, you know, like G, PG, PG-13, that's where we get that. They still wanted, you know, some control over the morality of what audiences were seeing and they wanted a classification system of how they could kind of like rank movies which yeah I really absolutely it, it you're absolutely right it just kind of like transitioned into something that i think was a little bit more palatable and allowed for yeah. a broader range of films to be made but definitely still restricted 
access to certain stories and still Mm -hmm. operated in this idea of like morality, like what are people allowed to see? And so I think that you're right. That's a really good point too. The last point that I kind of want to make from my film school (laughs) knowledge. Because you're a film bro. General, because I'm a film bro and general just like film knowledge is that it's just so ironic to me that during the Hayes Code, some of the most prominent actors were gay, like Rock Hudson, Tab Hunter, Dean Martin. Um, what's that guy that in stands in the rain and goes, Stella? Marlon oh. Brando. Oh, so you're not and talking about Marlon Rocky. Brando. No, I'm not talking about Rocky. I'm ta- I was talking about streetcar, a streetcar named Desire. Okay. Um, but it's like all of, like, those were the actors of the time so it's like even though there were such restrictions on these movies it's just so ironic that the people making these films were like just so queer like the classic films were in a way queer works of art that were just kind of being censored yeah that's exactly what it is and i think remembering it as a censorship especially of Mm -hmm. the queer people who were creating them is the best thing to kind of frame it as. Oh God. Now I feel like I kind of want to go watch an old movie and just kind of. I know. Find all the things that were queer about it. Yeah. You got to like, we start a movie club. Yeah, we should. It also feels like a little bit. I was just going to say, is that what we're doing? We're starting a movie club. Well, maybe I was going to say, maybe that's what the Friends of Dorothy events on our cruise ship are going to be. Okay. Everybody I think we have get like into a, a room thing. and watch a movie. Well, yeah, we have to identify like the East, the queer Easter eggs. So true. So everyone, you are cordially invited to the Historically Really Good Friends cruise line. We <laughs> will be launching out of the Florida Keys uh in 2030 um be there or be square be queer or be here (laughs) i mean no those are not good options but we'll take it just get there yeah get your tickets we'll see you there we'll see you there we'll see you soon we'll see (laughs) thanks for tuning in to episode eight of historically really good friends where we talked about queer secrets of cinema This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even being a voice-stealing sea witch a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Instagram at historicallyreally. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye!